Well, if you have your Bible, uh, you can make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 5 and into chapter 6 uh, is where we're going to find ourselves today. Um, we had uh, Friday into uh, Saturday evening a great time at our men's retreat this year. We had just shy of 40 men uh, from our church come out uh, to consider the theme of Sabbath. Um, so thanks to all of you uh, that were able to take the time to come. Uh, and I know we missed many of you for, for a variety of good reasons that weren't able to come this week. Um, but we really, uh, really enjoyed the time there. You can ask uh, Ray about his chili and the multiple awards that took home. Uh, you could ask uh, Pastor John and Jordan about uh, the Cornhole Championship. Uh, you can also, if you've uh, gotten to meet Pat Knapp, he is now referred to as generic bearded pastor number three. <laughs> so if, if you need to know the story behind that, we're happy to share it. Um, we have all of our pastors here have beards if you're new, so he's now generic bearded pastor number three. It's a skit that we did the other day. So, um, Would encourage you to continue those conversations, even if you weren't able to come, especially among the men of the church, about Sabbath and what that rhythm looks like uh, in our lives, what, why we're called to that. Uh, it's a really worthwhile topic, and we're grateful for some time to, to delve into that this weekend. Uh, page 555 is where you'll find Ecclesiastes 5, by the way, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles. Uh, before I read that, uh, from, from 2008 to 2014, uh, Joy Williams and John Paul White were known as the Grammy Award-winning duo, The Civil Wars. Anybody familiar with any of their music? A few hands out there. Uh, in April of 2009, they recorded their show, their live show, at a place called Eddie's Attic, uh, just outside of Atlanta in Decatur, Georgia. And on the live album, after they're introduced, uh, but before they even play a single note, John Paul Williams comes up to the microphone and he says, if you're not sad now, you're going to be. If you're not sad now, you're going to be. And then in a, a few songs into the set, after a song called uh, Poison and Wine, the audience applauds, and immediately after the applause kind of dies down, he gets back on the mic and he says, are you sad yet? And I think we need some of those interludes for the book of Ecclesiastes. Just after, after recounting each of these different aspects of this quest that continues to come up empty in the vanity of everything, we need some of these are you sad yet interludes in Ecclesiastes. We could even use this as a tagline for the entire book, like Ecclesiastes, if you're not sad now, you're going to be. There have been in Ecclesiastes, and I hope you've heard them, some really bright spots this ultimate conclusion about the existence of God, the reality of God, and that he will judge, bring everything into judgment, it breaks through into his recounting of his quest as he makes his way through it. Not in a way that's completely settling, um, not in a way that's completely encouraging, but with enough truth, with enough hope to give us the courage to press on. Uh, and so this morning, we press on. And if we are willing there is much in today's text for us to learn. Uh, for some, this will be something that we have also learned experientially. For others of us, we will have to take his word for it. And that's particularly true when it, when it comes to the pursuit of wealth. None of us in this room have ever come even remotely close to the wealth of, of the one writing this book. And so the choice is going to be held out for us today. Can we trust his conclusions about wealth and learn vicariously from his own vast experience, or will we stubbornly persist until we are finally convinced ourselves? Similarly, some of us wrestle with perpetual discontentment, but not to the degree 
that this author did. As he's going to say, he lacked nothing that he desired, and yet the power to enjoy those things that he had eludes him. Koholeth, this preacher king, goes to a really dark place in this text, saying even that it might have been better for him never to have been born. Some of us have been there. Others of us haven't, and perhaps won't ever be. Either way, will we trust his conclusions about discontentment? Will we learn from his depth of experience, not only in acquiring wisdom and wealth and pleasure and success, but coming face to face with the depths of disappointment and despair? Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8 and continuing on through chapter 6. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for the toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go." And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, referring to the child, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. 
and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Verses 8 and 9 here of chapter 5 are a, a brief return visit to the topic of justice and oppression, which we explored more uh, a couple weeks ago when we were back in chapter 4. But the main emphasis of our text this morning really centers on these two things, the vanity of wealth and the vanity of discontentment. The vanity of wealth and the vanity of discontentment. So first, the vanity of wealth. How much human misery in the past 3,000 years or so might have been avoided if we actually believed the words of verse 10? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, and he who loves wealth with his income. We are prone to, particularly in our culture, chase the wind when it comes to wealth. We attempt to, to grab a hold of the smoke, and when it slips through our fingers, instead of being convinced that we'll never grab onto it, we just try to climb a little bit higher to a different vantage point and reach for it again. In his short book on money called The Treasure Principle, uh, an author named Randy Alcorn uh, hooks into this text in Ecclesiastes 5, and he summarizes how utterly unsatisfying the love of and the pursuit of money really is. So verse 10, the more you have, the more you want, and the more you have, the less you're satisfied. That immediately reminded me of John D. Rockefeller, famous titan of industry in America. At the height of his wealth, he was once asked, how much is enough? And he responded, one dollar more. One dollar more. Verse 11, the more you have, the more that people will come after it. The more people will come after it. Uh, a few years ago, and I think they're still producing some of these now, uh, ESPN produced a really well-done series of documentaries called 30 for 30. Uh, and one of the documentaries in that series was called Broke. And it chronicled the epidemic of how quickly multi-millionaire athletes burn through a vast amount of money, a vast amount of wealth. And I'd have to go back to remember specifics, and I didn't have time to do so this week, but a few of them speak to how, like, the second after they sign their contract and get their signing bonus, people come out of the woodwork looking for either handouts or, quote-unquote, investment opportunities. You know, your uncle has a restaurant that he's been wanting to start, and your third cousin twice removed wants to start a car wash with you and thinks, thinks you need to bankroll that. Verse 11, the more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. And then verse 12, the more you have, the more, the more you have to worry about. William Vanderbilt once said, the care of $200 million, and that was 150 years ago, so we're talking billions today, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Verse 13, the more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. So if you've been paying attention to the news at all this week, you know the, the Powerball, the Mega Millions, is like approaching the $2 billion jackpot. It's like the highest it's ever been in the history of the lottery. 
it's a really appealing prospect for many as, as we go out to buy our tickets and, and aim for our shot there at a, at a vast amount of money. It reminded me of this little story of uh, a fairly well-known pastor uh, and abolitionist named John Newton. Many of you might be familiar with him. It's a great little small story about his life where a woman in his church uh, came into a vast amount of money. I think she won some kind of contest and had a lot of money come to her. And she came to John Newton thinking that this would be a really good opportunity for her pastor to rejoice with her in the blessings of God. And John Newton, very compassionately, but very candidly and bluntly said to her, Madam, as for a friend under temptation, I will pray for you. As for a friend under temptation, I will pray for you. He knew instinctively what that amount of money was going to tempt her to do and to become. Verse 14, the more you have, the more you have to lose. We probably know people like this. Maybe even some of us are these people. Things, wealth can be lost in an instant in a bad venture, a bad investment. You try to start a business and it doesn't take. And if you have family, as Koholeth goes on to say, if you have a son, you have, that means you have nothing then to leave for them. Verse 15 the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. Another example from John D. Rockefeller's life. After he died, someone asked his accountant, well, how much money did John D. leave behind? And the accountant's reply was classic. He said, all, all of it. He left all of it behind. <laughs> so to sum it up, wealth brings no satisfaction, no security, no peace, and no guarantees. And moreover, there's a double evil. There's a double kind of vanity in this because to accumulate great wealth like this almost always requires great toil. And as we've already seen in this quest, hard work and this toil in and of itself is vanity. And Koholeth picks up on that in verses 16 and 17. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Your hard work, in other words, will leave you, as he says, to pass your days in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. And in the end, the wealth that you acquire from all that vain hard work you've done in your life will leave you emptier than when you started. I love how Derek Kidner sums this up in the commentary that we're using for those of you doing Bible studies with us this semester. Derek Kidner says it this way, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness it leaves. Man, Kidner goes on to say, with eternity in his heart, needs better nourishment than this. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. We are made for more than wealth. And this is why, in the mysterious mercy of God, the more that you and I trust in money, the less satisfied we will be with it. This whole endeavor of great toil and accumulating wealth is part of why this preacher king reaches the depths of discontentment that we're going to explore in just a moment. But if we are meant to build our lives on the bedrock of the existence of God, this is the way it must be. Our pursuit of meaning outside of God must always leave us vexed and angry and sick. Any wealth that we do have is meant to be a gift, is meant to be understood as a gift from God. But as Charles Bridges wrote decades ago, how often is our wise and loving Father constrained to make the gift a grief because we are so disposed to make it a God? Let me read that again. How often is our wise and loving Father constrained to make the gift a grief because we are so disposed to make it a God? Gifts 
will become griefs when we attempt to make them God's. And even if you don't perceive it as such, even if you outright reject God's involvement in the process, it truly is the mercy of God for you and I to feel the vanity of every such pursuit, and especially that pursuit of wealth. Better to be discontent your entire life rather than to actually find satisfaction in a God that is no God. But discontentment is not the bottom itself of the rabbit hole because perpetual discontentment will likewise leave us empty. So second, let's talk about that, the vanity of discontentment. Skip down for just a moment to chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Uh, the, the sight of the eyes is present reality. It's what actually exists before us in the present. The wandering of the appetite, these are our desires, what we want, what we think we need, what we see as ideal. And Koheleth's entire quest is really summed up in this. He has everything, so the sight of his eyes, his present reality is all wealth, all wisdom, all success, all power, all honor, all pleasure. And yet, He's embarked on this quest and he's come up empty because his appetite, his desires, they keep wandering. The target keeps on moving. And he keeps longing for something more even as he arrives at something he thought would do it. Where this leaves him is in a perpetual and an incurable state of discontentment, which I'm sure is not hard for us to imagine, is also an utterly unsatisfying place to find yourself. This is a, a really intriguing turn in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because up to this point, the pursuits that Koheleth is, has searched for meaning among are generally and broadly, I think, appealing and desirable things. So even if we are aware of the dangers, even if we're aware of the futility, there's an appeal to wealth and there's an appeal to success and there's an appeal to working hard and accomplishing things. There's an appeal to pleasure. But discontentment? Is anyone really drawn to the idea of being discontent perpetually? Does anyone wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I hope my entire day is fixated on what is not good about life. Does anyone wake up in the morning and say, today I hope I'm just outright consumed by the gaps between reality and ideals? I think there are some people that are prone to this. And some who find uh, a kind of warped enjoyment in always being miserable or who enjoy the attention that might come to them by perpetually complaining or by interpreting their entire life through the lens of a victim. But even these men and women, if you get to know them, if you get to talk to them, they will speak of their desire to be happy. And by far, most people who wrestle deeply with discontentment would give anything to be rid of it. That includes... Koheleth. Back to chapter 6, verse 1. It doesn't say so explicitly. I'm convinced this is Koheleth talking about himself. A man to whom God gives wealth and possession and honor so that he lacks nothing he desires. That's exactly the way that he describes himself back in chapters 1 and 2. And yet the power to actually arrive at satisfaction eludes him at every turn of this quest. And so he says it's vanity. It's a grievous evil. He's deeply discontented, which should shock 
none of us, since the refrain of this entire piece of writing is, all is vanity and a striving after wind. You don't say that when you're in a place of contentedness. But even more than discontentment, which is something that will apply to all of us at varying times and places in our lives, Koholeth reaches a place of despondency and perhaps even depression. We wouldn't have a way of knowing clinically what was true there of him, but perhaps even depression. He's in a really dark place as he writes these words at the beginning of chapter 6. And he says there, a stillborn child would be better off. In other words, it's better to have never lived at all than to live with this sense of perpetual discontentment. If in the end we all die anyway, why go through life either not obtaining good things or obtaining them and being unable to enjoy them? If life is always characterized by discontentment, long life, even life that's a thousand years twice over, as he says, is what an author calls protracted misery. If, if our lives are characterized by perpetual discontentment, a long life is just protracted misery. And this is not the only place in Scripture where an author honestly wrestles with despondency and depression like this. Koholeth has camaraderie in the Word of God with Job and with Jeremiah. Job chapter 3. Job says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. And he goes on to say, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20, writes, Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father that a son had been born. He goes on to say, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and to spend my days in shame? Huge topic that we won't get to fully unpack together this morning, but let me at least call us to this as a church family. Our Bibles are more honest than most of us as Christians are willing to be. And we must never shy away from having honest conversation about despondency, about despair, about depression when we experience them. As fallen humanity, we experience deep brokenness in a multitude of ways. And for many people, depression, despairing even of life itself, is one of those ways. And we must be a place, we must be a people where it is okay to share that and where it's okay to wrestle through that with one another. If and when someone says, it would be better off if I'd never been born, we've got to be the kind of people who don't immediately freak out and commit someone to psychiatric treatment. So yes, sometimes people are a threat to themselves or a threat to other people, and in that case, immediate intervention is necessary. But there are other times, probably most of the time, where what a person really needs is for those people who love them and are in their lives around them to have a category for this and to be able to meet them in the midst of it. This right here is the category for this. Koholeth and Job and Jeremiah. Don't run from people when they find themselves in the depths of despair and depression and cement it into your grid this morning that at least three people entrusted by the Spirit of God to write down the very Word of God reach this place that we know of, 
probably more. And just like the rest of Scripture, this too is written down for our instruction so that we might never be people who say, wow, how could anyone get there? No, no, no. Instead, respond by saying, I know exactly. I know exactly how you can get there. The weight of despair and discontentment in the midst of life under the sun can absolutely drive us to this place. Beyond having a category for this, see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 that discontentment plays a really important role in our lives. Why? Because we know what man is, as Koholeth writes. We know that we were created with the very glory of God, that we are created in the image of the God of heaven and earth, and we know that sin has pervasively corrupted all of that in us and in the world around us. And so the discontentment we experience is real because truly this is not the way that it was meant to be. We're not meant to be mastered by our appetites. We're not meant to work hard and toil hard and lose it all in this whole vain pursuit that Coleth describes here. So discontentment is meant to remind us not to seek ultimate satisfaction here. It's meant to remind us that things are not right with this world and they're not right with our own hearts and our own lives. At the same time, discontentment is not meant to be our ultimate posture. Why? Because humanity's fall into sin is not the end of the story. Into the futility, into the corruption, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, there is plentiful and pervasive redemption. If our posture terminates on discontentment, we live our lives functionally as if sin has the final word. And thanks be to God, it does not. It does not. Even if in our sadistic and self-sabotaging ways, we wanted it to be. If we wanted to make God out to be the villain and we the perpetual victim, we can't make that narrative true. We cannot, as it says in verse 10 of chapter 6, dispute with the one who is stronger, who is mightier than us. And you and I living today and looking back on even more of the story of God, we know what Koholath could only hear faint whispers of. That God has, by the power that upholds the universe, by the power that brought Jesus back from the dead, declared once for all, I am making all things new. Most Christians would agree that to live our lives fixated on wealth is to live against the grain of God's design. And most Christians would agree that to live like that would ultimately be revealed as empty and vain. Do we see that a life immersed in perpetual discontentment is just as vain? It's just as much against the grain of God's design. Both take a part of the story of God into account and reject another. Both are an elevation or an accentuation of one part of the story to the detriment of the whole story. So pursuing wealth, loving money, it seeks to secure our best lives now when the true story, the whole story, is that our best lives are the life to come. Sitting in discontentment then, acting like sin has the final word, that is locking our feet in the fall and forgetting that the whole story, the full story, the true story is that God in Christ will make his salvation known as far as the curse is found. And herein lies a surprising call to joy and to contentment in the midst of a book that's all about vanity and emptiness. Look back at chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Eat and drink 
and find enjoyment in all the toil with, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life. We've read this before in the book of Ecclesiastes. And sometimes when Koaleth has written it before, the subtext is, well, that's really the best that we can do. That's really the best that we can do with a secular view of the world, without a God-centered view of the world. Everything is just vain, so just try to enjoy it anyway. But here it's different. It's different because it explicitly injects God into the picture. It's not just the days of your life. It's the days God has given you. It's not wealth and possessions that you have obtained. It's wealth and possessions God has given you. And moreover, he's given you the power to enjoy them. And therefore, verse 19 of chapter 5, accept your lot and rejoice in your toil because these are the gifts of God. We spend so much of our lives fighting against our lot in our ambition and culturally, the virtue is always keep striving. Keep fighting for the next rung up. Keep rising above where you are now. And there are absolutely times where faithfulness to God will indeed require striving for more, having a, a God-given ambition to use our gifts and our time, to use our entire lives faithfully and to their fullest. But how often is that really our motive for striving? Isn't our motive for striving often discontentment? disapproval and anger at God that what I have and my current station in life is not enough. And so we keep pushing for the next promotion, the next job, the next house, the next success, the next zero in our bank account. But rather than solve our discontentment, it just buries us deeper beneath it. May we call what is vain, vain. And may we call what is folly, folly. And instead, may we learn to accept our lot and rejoice in our toil. In other words, may we find contentment. How do we do that? Just like he says here, in receiving our lives as the gift that they are from the very hand of God. One of my heroes in pastoral ministry is a man named Charles Simeon. He once wrote, there are but two things, two lessons for, for the Christian to learn. The one is to enjoy God in everything. The other to enjoy everything in God. To enjoy God in everything, to enjoy everything in God. So receive wealth if it comes. But if you apply yourself and you work hard and you wind up poor anyway, then receive the poverty too. As Job says, shall we only receive what is good from God and not what is evil? In other words, are we only willing to see God's hand in the midst of things if we judge something good by our own criteria? This call to contentment and enjoyment is in no way meant to lead us to an ignorance or a denial of the vexations and the sufferings in life under the sun. Instead, it's that we no longer see these things as ultimate reality. Even our vexations, even our discontentments and our suffering, like the unjust official that we read about at the very beginning of this passage, is subject to one who is higher. Shall we not receive them as our lot? Moreover, Receive the ways that God has given you the ability to enjoy what you have because that is something, and this is totally true for me, we take it for granted until we can't enjoy it anymore. We always take it for granted until we lose the ability to enjoy it. And even more, if your days pass quickly, receive this too as a gift from God. It is better that our days 
in the midst of a fallen, fractured world pass quickly that our faith might become sight, as we sang about, that our longings might become fulfilled. And receiving from the hand of God, we might even dare to find our hearts occupied with joy and life passing by swiftly, not because it's easy, not because it's uncomplicated, not because we've buried our head in the sand, but as Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary, but because we find life utterly absorbing. We receive from the hand of God and we find all of life in receiving from him utterly absorbing. So fast forward to the end of this text. Who knows what is good for us? Who can tell us what will be after us under the sun? How are we supposed to know if something that appears good actually is or something that appears evil actually is? Psalm chapter 4, verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In the mercy of God, May you be discontent your whole life rather than find satisfaction in a God that is no God. But better yet, may you actually find satisfaction in God himself. May you find contentment in receiving from his hand. May God lift up the light of his face upon you. For we have no hope, we have no joy, we have no fulfillment apart from him. Amen. Pray for us. Oh, would you lift up the light of your face upon us, God? Because this life is utterly empty apart from you. And we pray this morning that you would convince us more deeply of the vanity of wealth, of the vanity of discontentment, that we would be people who would be able to receive from your hand our lot and the gifts of this life that you give in your kindness and grace. We confess that much of our lives are so hard to receive and that we don't perceive what you are doing in it. We don't perceive the good in it that you are working. And so we cry out for grace in those times. We cry out for mercy in those times. And we ask that in the absence of answers, you would give us faith, that you would remind us that you are the one who lifts up the light of your face upon us, that you are the one who defines what is good, and you are the one who by coming into this world and through the work of Christ, living, dying, rising from the dead, has declared that you are making all things new. We come to his table now. We pray this in his name. Amen.